0: Hello and welcome to Future Thinking with Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Media and Marketing at Stylus. And today I'm joined by Bethany Kobe, designer, inventor, and founder of Tech Will Save Us, and Davey Pinati, Stylus's Senior Editor of Product Design. Today, we're going to be discussing how both brands and consumers will shift from a world that's constantly pushing new products to one where we have a more lasting and meaningful relationship with the things that we make and own. So first of all, Bethany, could you please tell us about um, Tech Will Save Us and what motivated you to set it up?
1: Sure. So we started Tech Will Save Us about five years ago. Um, The premise for starting the business kind of was from a few different Reasons. One, um, I come from a background of educators. So my mother owned a Montessori school for about 40 years. So I grew up in a very progressive educational environment. The second thing was um, my co founder, um, his background's in physical computing which is basically engineering for human interactions. So dealing with lights and sounds and motors and sensors and voice, not just screen-based interactions. Um, And then I have a deep background in design, product design, graphic design, branding, innovation. And at the time of thinking about Tech Will Save Us, I was pregnant with my first child. I'm pregnant again with my second. And I hadn't been to the toy department since I was a child. And I went to the toy department And it was quite depressing. It felt incredibly old school in terms of how it was gendered. So there's still really significant pink and blue aisles. There's all these gender stereotypes happening. And the world of technology that was being presented to kids was just not very optimistic. It wasn't very inspiring. It felt like the toy industry wasn't really this optimistic, expressive, productive place that quite frankly, kids deserve. They are, you know, they are the future and they're going to be the ones that are using technology. And that's not what was being presented in that industry. So we did what crazy people do. And we decided to start a business and see if we could create something that was an optimistic, expressive, really productive brand, specifically about technology for kids and families.
0: So what was the first product that you produced?
1: So we actually just we started as a workshop business we started by creating experiences for kids and families where they would come together and kind of make in community so simple products where kids could put together a bunch of components. And make something with technology. And that was really successful. Kids loved it. Parents loved it. Kids just love making things. Um, And we quickly realized we could kitify that experience. We could take all of that and put it in a box and create a digital platform that would have content, community, instructions, coding. And so that was the beginning of the business. And we um, started with a kind of musical instrument. And since then, we now have 14 different products in the range. They range from four years old all the way to 10 years old, and they range in experiences. So we have things that are around music tech, things that are around energy tech, things that are around uh, craft tech. So we try and create curriculum around technology areas based on passions that kids already love.
0: So what kind of particular skills are, are the children learning through these toys?
1: So there's a bunch of things that we try and incorporate in our kind of curriculum. There's um, kind of skills such as problem solving, creativity, coding making circuits understanding how electricity works so kind of real real skills and then there's some kind of cross-cutting areas that we really focus on collaboration communication problem solving creativity so we try and ensure that all the products have those kind of four cross-cutting skills as part of it um, and then some deeper kind of practical applications within the experiences that we create as well
0: wow brilliant How will these skills um, help them in the future, do you think? Because uh, I I read this stat that 65% of our children will be in jobs that don't exist yet. So will this kind of uh, maker's mindset give them a competitive edge?
1: So there's two things that we focus on. One is we are an educational toy brand. So first and foremost, we want to make sure our experiences are fun. That has to be the main reason we create the products we create. The second thing is that it does provide learning advantages. And those advantages should be skills, experiences, a worldview that allows those kids to see technology as something that they can actually do, that they can create with, prototype with, solve problems with, that it's not something that's just happening to them, but something that they can actually be productive with, expressive with. So those skills, I mean, there's a quote that I think about a lot, which is, we're basically preparing a generation for a future where we don't know the skills they will need to know. We don't know the problems they're going to need to solve, and we don't know the technologies they're going to have to use. So that's a pretty vague future that we're preparing them for. Our perspective is that technology is not going anywhere. These kids are going to have to use it in really radically new ways. A kid that has only dealt with technology in a consumptive way will just have a particular view of what that can do, what technology is. A kid that has seen that technology is not just a screen, but that it's you know circuits and it's AI and it's voice and has had fun playing, manipulating, understanding it will inherently have a different level of confidence, a different level of capabilities, a different level of understanding, and hopefully a level of creativity that will allow that child to thrive in this, quite frankly, really unknown future that parents and, and educators are trying to pave a pathway for. So we're not saying that you're going to learn coding and automatically become a developer. We're saying that by being exposed to technology in a creative way, kids will see it as a medium that they can do things with, as opposed to just a screen, first and foremost, or quite frankly, something that they can't do, that someone else has to do stuff with it for them.
0: Right. So, David, this, this maker's mindset that we, we're discussing now is something that you talk about on Stylus in terms of a shift away from seeing products as things that inevitably wear out and need to be replaced. Could you talk a bit about the implications of that?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of is going to happen here because part of it is driven by the right to repair campaigns gaining pace in the US and in the EU. But I think it's mainly driven by this very critical consumer that is just defying planned obsolescence and um, needlessly throwing things away. And I think it's really interesting what you're saying because I think up till now we've been... Our generation, we've been consumers of technology, uh, mainly without really understanding how things work or what our implica- what the implications are of our interactions with tech. So as soon as something breaks down or something newer comes along, we kind of dispose the old and we all get onto the new thing. And I think this is really changing at the moment. People are getting more reluctant to constantly buy new. And now we're talking about children who can... Um, autonomously build products and then disassemble them and build something new. So I think this is, you know, for them to understand the mechanics of technology. They'll have a different relationship with tech and different relationship with their products, which is more hands-on. They'll um, be less acceptant of products that can't be opened up, that are glued together. So I think they'll be more likely to repair things in the future. So it sounds like a very interesting way to go and um, I think companies and brands really have to accept that making things last longer is not anti-consumerism Well this is what
0: I was going to ask I mean this all sounds wonderful for consumers um, but you know brands need to make profit and grow, Um, how how does that work in a a world where, where products are being fixed by the people that buy them?
1: I mean in our case the way we look at it is that that people won't stop buying certain things that they need. However, the brands have an opportunity of creating long-term relationships with their customers, where they really understand the needs of those customers. So for us, it's really about getting to know our customer, which we call the future-focused family. It's a family that's really engaged in their kids' lives. They care about what's happening in the environment. They're worried about politics. They care about education. It's less of a demographic and more of a kind of ethnographic kind of perspective on parenting, quite frankly. And those parents, those families, they curate technology. They're not anti-technology. They're not anti-consumerism. But they curate what's in their lives because they are making choices. They're being discerning. So for us as a brand and as a business, yes, we create new products and we want to be relevant for those occasions, birthdays, Christmas. You know, you want to be able to give your kids things. But we also want to be really innovative and be able to provide services and experiences and long tails of content, activities, making kind of opportunities where you're just using stuff in your kitchen. So our job is not to just create new things for the sake of new It's to actually build a long relationship with those people, those families, where we're actually helping to solve problems. Like, what am I going to do on Saturday with my five-year-old? Or, you know, half-term is coming up and I have a week of, you know, time. How am I going to do that? Or my son really loves gaming, but I really don't want him to play Fortnite. What are my other options? So it's really going deep into that and understanding what is that long-term relationship we can provide what are the right ways of doing that? Some of those might be products, but some of them might be
2: services, experiences, content, other things that we can provide. And I think you do that so well with the community you create where you can keep going back and see what else you can make with things you already own. And it's, it's, it feels very um, friendly. And, um, yeah, it feels like you're really giving a lot to your customers. We're trying. <laughs>
0: Davy, have you seen any examples of other brands that are sort of doing this same sort of thing with community and experiences?
2: Yes, and I think it's also quite interesting that brands starting to understand that people want things when they need them, but they're caring less about owning everything all the time for the rest of their lives. And there's some interesting concepts we've seen there, um, also with bulky things like furniture, furniture, um, And a nice family concept is um, a furniture brand from Chicago called 57th Street, where they sell you um, hardwood furniture, so it lasts very long. And it's also promoting um, their belief in how long their products will last, because if your lifestyle changes, you can return your table. um, You know, if you have two kids and you just need a bigger table, then they will buy it back from you. They will restore it and then sell it again for a slightly lower price to make sure it's kept on being circulated. And then you can you get store credit. You can buy yourself a bigger table. So it's you tie those customers to your brand because you give them store credit. They will buy another table from you. But it's just creating this more friendlier um, environment. Um, yeah, which is much more about creating a relationship. I think. Mm.
0: So. I- I come from a marketing perspective at Stylus, so this sounds, you know, really exciting and and makes a lot of sense, Um, but I imagine there's probably a little resistance from consumers in this idea um, that they can't just byproducts and then get the next one and, and they're going to have to get sort of involved and it's going to be a bit more participatory and interactive. How do you start changing people's perceptions of what it means to be a consumer? Because it's quite a big shift, really.
1: Mm. I mean, I, I think there's a, I think there's a few kind of angles to that. I think one is is about the brand really understanding the customer and understanding that the customer we're focused on actually does want to participate. So in our case, the future-focused family, the thing that comes up time and time again is that they actually want to spend time with their kids, and their kids actually want to spend time with them. So it turns out kids from 4 to 10 still actually want to spend time with their parents, and their parents are just more than happy to want that as well, because once they reach a certain age, that maybe becomes less And so we really want to capitalize on that. So they want to spend time together. So our job is to say, great, how can we give you opportunities to do that? And how much time and how much participation can we provide for you? So I think it's about, again, going back to the customer and really understanding how much can we realistically expect Um, And can we give options and choices so that we're not saying one size fits everyone, um, but we're giving that kind of breadth of experiences that allow for participation in the way that that particular family is willing to give? Um, I do think the other side of it is more to what you were saying, that there is a dramatic shift in people actually wanting to really participate or know more about the brands that they're you know, working with or giving their hard-earned money to. They want to know that that brand has a perspective on the world, that that brand is, you know, iterating and trying to do things in a new and different way. Even if they haven't solved the problem, they want to have transparency that that brand is making efforts to do better. One, because hopefully that person themselves is trying to do better, so they want to feel that value alignment. Um, I think brands that aren't talking about that, I don't think they're being authentic. I think people see through them. And that, that creates not, not just a lack of participation, it just becomes fully transactional. That's all you do is transact, which is fine for a brand to be that. I think the brands that people love, the brands that people are super loyal to, they're more than transactions ultimately.
0: I think what we're discussing now is obviously quite, um, it makes a lot of sense for brands that are just starting out they can build they can bake this into their dna from the beginning if you're an established brand that's been around for 20 30 years how do you adapt to this new future who wants to take this
1: <laughs> i mean one of the great examples and it's such a used example is patagonia you know they they just keep reinventing what they are and the problems that they're trying to solve yeah. and they you know they do it new and different every single time because the problem continues to grow and continues to be different and they're not claiming to have solved it neither are they claiming that they don't contribute to it but they actively like very actively do things that represent their commitment to the problems whether that's donating huge amounts of their proceeds you know and their profits to you know sustainable initiatives, whether that's building experiences that allow people to repair and bring products back, et cetera, et cetera, even though that might not be very profitable for them ultimately, they are continuing to kind of fight like the fights because they're, I mean, quite frankly, they're just like hardcore optimists that they're going to just keep doing this. And they also know that it is ultimately the thing that differentiates them from anyone else selling a puffer coat. Because ultimately... That's what they're selling. And I just think that's, you know, that's super inspiring to us to see a business like that continue to just do the thing they need to do, but
2: never the same. I think it's also, how you say, like brands that have been around for ages. I think brands should be much more dynamic in that sense. And if you've been around, then um, you should acknowledge that things are changing and you've been around for a while. So you're going to be around much longer. And I think IKEA did Mm -hmm. this really well, where they used to be the brand that, you go to as a student and you buy a table for £10 and then, you know, you chuck it away if a if a lag breaks. And now they've ch- completely changed this where um, they do research in their consumers' homes. They take back furniture from their consumers, repair it, resell it. They even offer, you know, electric cars for free so their consumers can do that. So it's they're creating this whole infrastructure around being green and really showing that they understand how people live and how that changes over time and just making sure that they're constantly relevant and part of their customer's life. I think Mm. that's what brands should do and there's no way that you shouldn't be doing that even if you've been around for ages because it means that you can probably get quite close to your customers if you are a household brand to them.
1: Yeah, and I think some of the brands that we just talked about, I think the thing they've done well is understand what uniquely they can do well. So like Ikea, they have supply chains that can transform industries, right? They are so omnipresent that when they decide to source some kind of new sustainable wood for a particular range of furniture, it creates like an industry. So they know that and they spend a lot of time building supply chains. Whereas Patagonia, supply chain is important. Obviously, they've done a lot of investigation around cottons and things like that, but they're an activist brand. Right. They create opportunities for their customers to be activists, even if they're not already. Right. So you might be working on Wall Street wearing like a puffer vest, but you can kind of donate to something and feel like you're contributing. And to your point around participation, that's a great way to say, you know, you may not be like an activist going to marches and like actually like climbing, you know, mountains, but you can still wear our products and participate in this movement just because you bought a product. That, for me, is really powerful. And I think that happens over time with maturity of a brand and a business. Because when you're young, I mean, you're trying to build the business. You're trying to build the customer base. You're trying to make profit. You're trying to do all these other things. These established brands have this amazing opportunity to be significant platforms, which some do well, some don't do so well.
0: Well, I look forward to when my son is uh, old enough to start playing with these Tech Will Savers toys and I can make him fit for this future that we've discussed today. Um, I think it was a really fascinating conversation. Thank you very much to my guests, Bethany Kobe and Davy Pinati. Uh, that was Future Thinking with Stylus and I'm Christian Ward and hopefully you will tune in next time. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.